for serving, thank you for loving, thank you for giving, thank you for coming every week, every month, every year after year, leading small groups, holding babies, making sure we can hear. We wanna thank you for caring, thank you for praying, thank you for leading, thank you for singing every year, every month, every week, every day. Serving coffee, cooking lunch, and put his love on display. Whether you're leading that small group or the Sunday school, teaching, equip, or marriage enrichment, yeah, you know that's cool. That's Men's cool. ministry, women's ministry, or 10 plus men. Or you're serving on those care teams with the Pastor Tim. Teaching Jesus got no spots. Animal crackers make the crying uh-huh. stop. So much happens in the first kids. Sharing the Bible and how to live. Leading teens in their small group, even when they won't talk back to you. I don't know what you've been told about us, about us, but we gonna love community around us, around us. Hey, Jay Stark, serve them all day. Taking these words, Beyonce, DMA, Good Sam, all the people for God's We wanna thank you for serving, thank you for loving, thank you for giving, thank you for coming. Every week, every month, serving Club Hero 5. Overseas on the mission and the local food drive We wanna thank you for caring Thank you for praying Thank you for leading Thank you for singing every year, every month, every week, all the time Arts Academy, Good Samaritan, the Block Direct Line Now you might catch us going in On the block we glisten in 305 in Parsons, the gospel we share it with the kids Going overseas, you know we never gonna eat With the gifts given, the arts, we take it to the streets We the saints will welcome in the people all in with a grin Even when they've been clearly arguing with their spouse They like 10 minutes late now the ushers help them sit down, pass the communion around, and get the offering blessed out. Every single one who helps in the office, all fixing up the building and making it flawless. Those who help out on the special needs team, all lift up the prayers to the one who reigns supreme. Security, yeah, yeah, you got a fast communications on home, mad props to the max. A big shout out to those who lead us, those trust that bit. Yeah, you we wanna thank you for serving, thank you for loving, thank you for giving. Thank you for coming Every week, every month, you never tire Fixing the building, serving meals and singing in the choir We wanna thank you for caring Thank you for praying Thank you for leading Thank you for singing every year, every month, every week, every day Traveling across the world, taking the time to pray Christian music has changed a little bit since when I was a child. (laughs) Bill Gaither, if he was dead, be turning over in his grave, but nonetheless. Welcome to church today, and truly, thank you for serving our community. As uh, Thomas mentioned a few minutes ago, we have more than 700 people serving in 1,100 positions around the community, and uh, that's great news for the name of Jesus Christ, so thank you for doing that. If you're guests with us today, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. And I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with you in Scripture. If you'll take your Bible to, and turn to Galatians, pardon me, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Welcome to everybody in the East Auditorium. We're glad you're worshiping with us, everybody in Lovington, to our brothers and sisters there. It's great to have you on board today, and to everybody who's watching online, welcome as well. Take your Bible, if you will, please, and uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we, it's about this far through the Bible, so it's 
way in towards the back. Okay, while you're finding Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to take a look at a photo. It's a photo of a building in England, and what I want you to pay attention to is the fact that some of the windows are boarded up. Why is that? What's with bordering up windows? You go, hmm. Okay, or here's another, another building as well. Also, that's got some windows boarded up. What's with that? Bricked in. I mean, this isn't a case where, man, if we just take the plywood down, excuse me, that we'll be, we'll be fine. Looks pretty permanent, right? Well, why are they like that? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to 1696, more than 300 years ago now. The king of Great Britain at the time was a fellow named William, William III, and he'd run out of money. And so like all uh, national leaders or leaders of any sort, when they run out of money, what do they do? They go looking to the people for more taxes. And he thought, hey, here's a way in which I could raise a little bit of money. How about if I tax every window in the country? So that meant all the homes. Now, if you were in a little home that had six or less windows, the window tax didn't apply to you. But if you had a building that had more than six windows, at window number seven, you started getting taxed. And so consequently, well... People don't like today, they don't like taxes, right? And um, it be, uh, historians think that's probably where the term b began, daylight robbery, that the, the tax was actually robbing people of, uh, of daylight. And so, um, I, I'm actually, I, to be honest, I was a little afraid of bringing this story to us in case that somebody in Springfield might watch. <laughs> and we'd be all looking to ways to brick up our windows or, or take the toilets out of our houses, but that's a different matter. <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, that wasn't nice, was it? But nonetheless, um, people didn't like it at all. And consequently, they would brick up their windows to say, well, that's not a window. That's just a place that could be a window in the future. And it became so common that even when it was repealed, uh, um, the, uh, the people got used to seeing buildings that had windows where bricks were there that even when it was repealed, people kept building buildings and said, well, now it's in vogue to have a, a window there, but to brick it over. And so you can see some buildings, even after it was repealed in, in 1851, buildings built after the fact still were bricking up their windows. And um, it was eventually repealed in 1851, as I said, because the British medical community said, for us to live in the dark is not wise. You know, it's not healthy. I mean, more light in a, in a room or in a, in a house creates a, a better mood, a greater, a better emotional status. And also, if you're in dim light, that's really unhealthy for your eyes, and it leads to poor eyesight. What, what amazes me here, it is many years, more than 150 years since the tax was repealed, I, I, I try to get my arms around it, thinking, how is it that people chose to forego having full light in their homes or in their buildings, all for the sake of money. They end up choosing ill health, poor eyesight, and darkness simply to avoid the tax collector. Now, I'm up for, like you, pay as few taxes as possible, keep it legal, and if it's a tax deduction, take it. But I think few of us these days would say, well, we're gonna go for less light simply to avoid taxes. Few of us would say would choose poor health simply to avoid the cost of a few panes of glass. We would choose better health over a small cost, wouldn't we? And yet do we? Let me explain it this way. Uh, 
At the end of last week's message, which concluded that series on the fruit of the Spirit, we called it the nine, remember? I began um, on Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, began to hear from an unusual number of people about apparently last week's message hit a raw nerve with some. When I say a raw nerve, not that I got no complaints. More so, I got people saying, hey, what you had us think about, this business of the Holy Spirit's control of our lives, I'm acknowledging to you, Pastor, that's a problem for me. And, you know, people are saying, we want God to be in charge, but we struggle in giving up that control. And so I got lots of comments via texts and notes and letters. I mean, stuff was stuck in my box and email. It was quite interesting. Um, and, and generally, it was, it was around this idea that the closing prayer... The, clo- the prayer that we had at the end of the message really messed with me, Pastor. And so I thought, would you like, for those of you who maybe weren't here with us or you, you, you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, here's the slide exactly as you saw it last week. You can see the logo, the nine. And this is the prayer that I invited people to think about before they prayed it, because it has some implications. We, I offered people the opportunity to pray this. Holy Spirit, as I walk in step with you, bring people and settings to my life this week where I can demonstrate greater faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. My appetites don't control my life. You are in charge of my life. And I gave everybody 30 seconds to think about that and said, okay, do you want to pray that? And people did. And then it messed with them because it's about control. And I just have to say that if that prayer messed with you, coming three weekends are going to be real challenging. Here's why. We're starting a three-week series today focused on how we allow the Holy Spirit to be in control of our lives. You know, we're going to examine God's control of our lives regarding who we are, if you will, our spirituality, our kind of core being, how God might control our daily routines, and then how God would have control of our stuff. And so you could think of it this way. This series is entitled All of Me. It's surrendering to God's control about who I am, what I do and what I own. And you may notice that Crystal uh, Kirkman, as she put the logo together, uh, took the two L's and made them look like DNA. Uh, so the idea is, at the very core of who we are, all of us, all of me, am I willing to give up control about that? And so this series, if you will, the next three weeks, is about surrender. It's about surrender and opportunity. And when it comes to surrender before God, when it comes to allowing the Holy Spirit to control us, like we prayed last week, it's going to be about surrender and then it's going to be about opportunities, about, if you will, the the light of God is available to us and then yet sometimes we try to block it off. And we don't want that light within us. You know, my my dad um, was a tradesman. All of, his, all of his working career, was a, he was a motor mechanic. And uh, so sometimes for, to bring extra income into the house, he would bring cars home to the house privately, if you will, apart from the firm that he worked with. And he would be out in the backyard or in the garage late in the evening working on people's cars. And invariably, it was my job to go out there with a, with a flashlight or in Australia, a torch, and to hold the torch so he could see down there in the dark. And it would feel like I was standing there for hours. It might have been 90 seconds. But nonetheless, I remember thinking, man, this light makes the darkness much more easy to work in. But sadly, while the light of God can shine in the places of darkness, too often... We choose poor spiritual health simply because, well, 
That light might cost something. It might cost us control. And it might cost us opportunities that we hadn't planned. So uh, that's where we're going. See if you can read with me today. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. It says this. By the way, Paul the Apostle is writing, premier writer of the, of the New Testament. Excuse me, he would have... Um, he, he's writing to his, his friends in his, the congregation at Ephesus. The pastor there is a young protege of his by the name of Timothy. And he's written this letter to Timothy. And then Timothy is to read it to all the people who are recent converts to Christianity. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases God. Okay, so live your life in a way that honors God and figure that out. Have nothing to do with the fruitless, fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Put that flashlight down inside the engine, down inside the, the hood of the car. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Everything exposed to light becomes visible. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it's said, wake up, O sleeper from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so in light of all of that, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Did you notice the discussion about light? He's saying that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have experienced God's light. You, have, you should have an awareness of life. If you're a world, you should, if he's saying basically, you should have a worldview that is significantly different than those who don't follow Jesus. And he says that light is best expressed in how we live. We don't need to block up windows and say, hey, I don't want light on this area of darkness. We say, no, bring the light in and expose everything. And then based on that light, we're to make wise choices. Verse 15, look at it again. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And living as a person of wisdom means you make the most of every opportunity. Now, I'm like you. I want to both adequately and wisely make the most of every opportunity that comes my way. I want to be, a good way to put that is, I want to be a good steward of every opportunity that comes my way. I want to manage it and care for it and effectively um, cause it to grow, if you will. And for, if I'm given a responsibility or given something, I want to, well, I want to see how God's going to use that. You're like me, and yet sometimes we don't always pull that off so well. And, and there's a story within the history of ancient Israel that I find quite fascinating in this regard. It's taken from one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, Joshua chapter 3. If you'll turn over to Joshua chapter 3, back at the very beginning of the Bible almost. And um, we're going to step into a story that some of you may know. And so to bring everybody up to speed, let me give you a little bit of background to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua details the the uh, events in the nation of Israel as they went into the promised land. Um, the promised land was known as the land of milk and honey. Uh, the Israelites have been told when you get to the promised land, there's going to be milk and honey there. In other words, milk being sustenance, honey being sweetness. You're going to get to go into a place that's going to sustain your lives, and you're going to get to a place where there's sweetness in your lives. But prior to getting there, you could say that was not their experience in a lot of ways. For 400 years, actually 440 years, what we're about to read in Joshua chapter 3, there's a story that goes back 440 years. 400 years, the people of Israel had been, been slaves in Egypt, 
And then for 40 years, well, they'd gotten free of that slavery. A fellow by the name of Moses came along and provided emancipation for them. And historians think that anywhere from 1 to 1.3 million people left, left Egypt. The Egyptians were hard taskmasters. Moses comes along, says, with God's help, I can get you out of here. Off they go. And, and if you can think geography, you've got Egypt and then you've got Israel off to the east, right? The northeast of Egypt. What's the land in between? The Sinai Peninsula. And so they spent 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land. They left Egypt and you would think they'd just march there automatically. Well, it took a while to figure a few things out. They, and throughout the 40 years, God was speaking through Moses and later on Joshua, and it was like, I, I want to help you before we get to the promised land and you all settle down. I want you to figure out what does it mean to be a nation of free people? What does it mean to be a nation that's going to be responsible for, for, for providing for your families and for generations to come? And what does it mean to have a polity, a national um, ethos, and a national governing system that honors God? And so you get things like the Ten Commandments and all sorts of other events that took place as they were figuring that out over 40 years. Along the way, as they're in the wilderness, as they're in the Sinai Peninsula, everybody that left Egypt dies, except for two people. So all the former slaves are dead, and you have a very young nation that's, everybody in the nation of Israel, when we get to Joshua chapter 3, everybody but two people are younger than 40, childbearing years. And so the nation is growing very quickly. Only two men from the slavery time of Egypt were alive, Joshua and Caleb. So you have then this whole new understanding of where we are no longer slaves. That's the story of our parents. We are free people and we know how to wander. We know every nook and cranny and all the, all the places of... Um, of the, the peninsula, and we, we, we know how to get to go where we need to go. And we're, go, we're headed towards the land of milk and honey, the land of sustenance and sweetness. And we know that on the other side over there in the promised land, uh, we're going to have to cross the Jordan River to get there. And once we get there, there's going to be some tribes in various places that aren't going to like us arriving, and there's probably going to be war. And in Joshua chapter 3, you get to the point where they're on the edge of the river, about to go into the promised land. And let's see what happens, okay? See if this is the way in which you would approach if you were or you are under 40 and you got a whole new day in front of you, how would you prepare for what the battle might look in front of you? Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shidom and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Now, these people know how to camp. I mean, they, got, they, they know how to do it. They've been doing it for 40 years, so they know how to set up a camp quickly. So they're there waiting, and after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. So now they're expecting we're going to go across the river, though they know the river is in flood stage. It's going to be difficult to get across. So these are the instructions. When you see the Ark of the Lord, park, pardon me, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. So... The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is a box that um, at various points in the nation's history symbolized uh, the presence of God. And it was, it was on poles and it was carried on the shoulders of priests and it symbolized the leadership of God. And so they're to expect to see that this Ark, this box, is going to get to the edge of the river. Then verse 4, follow that 
And then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Don't go near it. Now, here's what I find fascinating. These young people have been wandering in the peninsula, in the Sinai Peninsula, for 40 years. And yet they're going to follow the priests to where? A place they've never been before. Do you see that in verse 4? Then you will know which way to go. You'd think they didn't know already where to go. No, this is going to be new territory. You'll know which way to go since you've never been this way before. I'm aware of how this plays out for you and me. You might have walked with Jesus for 40 years. Thank you. Praise the Lord. You may have walked with Jesus for less than 40 hours. Thank you. Praise the Lord. But regardless, if you choose to walk with him, God's going to take you places you've never been in the past. Mature Christians are those who follow God. They follow God to opportunities and moments for growth, for development, for change. And frankly, in the eyes of these guys, this is a big adventure. And it's never been experienced before. I begs the question for me, what's it going to take for me to experience all the opportunities that God might bring my way? Well, let's keep reading because you're going to see that while they were expecting war, that's not what happened. Joshua told the Israelites, told the people, you know, I'd be expecting, you know, get your, get your sword sharpened, get your arrows straight. But no, he says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. You know, here, here, if I was one of the leaders and I got all these, all these people under the age of 40 in the prime of life and we're going to go take in some new territory, I'd be saying, okay, we're going to do a few extra, for three days, we're going to run around the, the track for three extra days. We're going to make certain that we get you in top physical shape. We're going to make certain that you do some weightlifting so that when you get into, an ar- into a fight, man, your arms are stronger than theirs and that your legs are going to be able to sustain swimming across the river and you're going to have great lung capacity so that if you have to go under the water, you can breathe it and you can you know, manage all that and everything. That's what I'd be doing and saying, okay, in the midst of all of this physical training, make certain all the implements of war are sharp and ready and so forth. But that's not what happened. Instead, Joshua and the military leaders say, when the priests put their foot in the water, put their feet in the water, Let's see what happens. Read on through the story. You know what happens? Here's this river in flood stage. The priests carry the Ark of the Covenant. They step into the water and it's, it just stops flowing. It stops flowing. Makes me ask, what's the key to getting to the place they've never been before? What's the way to get across the river that seemed impassable? It's in flood stage. It's not just, you know, 50, 60 feet across normally, like normal. It's wide, half a mile wide, I suppose. What's the preparation to make the most of every opportunity? Joshua says, consecrate yourselves and you'll see God do something amazing. I'm up for that. I want to see, friends, I want to see God accomplish something amazing in the life of our church. I want to see God accomplish something amazing in you, whether you're here in the West or the East or online or at Lovington. I pray that God will do something amazing in you. And what's the light of God that causes that opportunity and that amazing thing to occur? According to Joshua, consecration. So I have some questions and we'll figure out what consecration might mean because it's gonna, here's the questions that are reasonable. Are you up for making the most of every opportunity that comes your way? 
Are you willing to go to a place of spirituality? Following God on an adventure you've never, you've never had before? Are you wanting God to do something absolutely amazing you've never experienced before? Then according to Joshua, step into consecration and you are legitimately saying, what on earth is that? Well, consecration is this. If a person or a, an object is consecrated, it means it's separated or it belongs to God. There's some holiness and sacredness about that object or that person set apart for service to God. There's a sense that everything that a consecrated person does is done through this lens. Everything they have, everything they are, everything they do is, is this moment, is this thing, is this thought, is this action, is it going to serve God? How can I serve God in this matter? Now, Jesus would challenge the religious leaders around him on, these, on this sort of idea. He would often challenge the scribes and the Pharisees saying, you're supposed to be consecrated. You say you are religious leaders, which means that you should be set apart. You should consider yourself to have, be in service to God. And yet I don't see anything within you regarding justice and mercy and faith. Instead, you, while you say you're consecrated, you seem to be serving your own ideas and your own goals and you are neglecting God's plans. So a consecrated person, that Joshua is saying, if you want to get across the river, a consecrated person belongs to God. In spirituality, in other words, the very core of who we are, the bottom of our DNA, we belong to God. We belong to God in what we do daily. We'll look at that next week. And then we belong to God and everything we own belongs to God. I guess you could say, friends, it's about a life approach. If you say you follow God, if you believe you're ready to go to a place you've never been before, if you're anxious to see God accomplish something amazing like dry up the river in front of you, then choose consecration. It's what we see in Ephesians. Choose light over darkness. Be very careful how you live then, not as unwise, but as wise. And so to that end today, I want to give you two ideas about consecration, two ideas to contemplate and evaluate in the coming days. And that is, let's chat about surrender and about opportunity. See, the people of Joshua, Joshua 3, they, they chose what, in my estimation, is a rather very strange, you know, land takeover strategy. You would think they'd be ready to get into war but instead, they chose a spiritual moment, and they surrendered to God's plan, and it won. And it worked. And what I love about this, friend, is this gives you permission. This gives you, and it's an approach that doesn't make sense. And yet it gives you permission to take on a new approach to the new place that's in front of you. Some of us here today. We have a setting or a struggle or, you know, it's at work, it's at the house, maybe it's at school, maybe it's um, just a health issue. And it's a setting that you'd say, man, this, this, this is like an impassable river. It's rather desperate. And you need God to pull off some, some sort of amazing river stoppage. How's that going to go? Well, surrender to his plan. Surrender you, surrender your daily activities, surrender all the stuff you own to God. And I'm, not, I'm quite aware it's really hard. And maybe that's why the prayer we prayed last week brought all those comments back to me. 
It's like, man, this is way more difficult than I had first thought. See, because surrender isn't about what you know. You know, if you say, we, we have a culture that's a knowledge-based culture, right? And we, we send our kids off to school so they'll learn and we, we love that they go to school. And here it is, graduation weekend in many ways here. And so you've got, you know, kids coming and they're going, well, this is what I learned this past year and I'm going to be in a new grade next year. We celebrate all that. Or I'm going to go off to college or I've finished college. I'm going to get a job, that sort of stuff. And we'd say, the more you know, the better off you are. And then we take that same approach into our spirituality. And we legitimately say, the more Bible you know, you'll be a better Christian. We believe that. Of course we do. And there's some truth there. But friends, it's not the Bible information per se that changes you. It's how the Holy Spirit uses that Bible information. See, you may, you may be such a Bible student that you know all 66 books of the Bible, frontwards and backwards. You can name it. Or you may know all the details of Calvinism or all the details of, of creation and all the possible five different ways to look. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You, you, may, have, you may be able to teach seminary. Great. I'd love to chat with you and see what you know. I really would. But friends, being an encyclopedia of biblical knowledge, it might be nice, and it might make for good reading or good listening. But someone who is a mature follower of Jesus Christ, it's not just about what we learn in Scripture. In scripture. We push Bible study. I get that. Absolutely. But what are you doing with that knowledge? So you could be sitting in class all day long and study the Bible and still be a really ineffectual Christian. That's what Jesus was concerned about with the scribes and Pharisees. You know the law, he would say, but it doesn't impact the way you serve others. See, a consecrated Christian does more than study. A, consecration, a consecrated Christian follows God across rivers to places and to people they've never met before, never seen before. And how? It's by choosing to surrender. It's praying, God, you're in control. It's saying, how can I serve God in this matter? Where do I serve today? All of me is following you. And then based on that surrender, a consecrated or surrendered to God Christian takes on the adventure of opportunities. Remember our Ephesians passage again. It says, be very careful how you live then. Not as unwise, but as wise, doing what? Making the most of every opportunity. See, I surrendered to God person. A person who is standing at the edge of the riverbank wondering how to get across and relying on God is a person who says, okay, the river is in flood stage, fair enough, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. I'm going to spend my three days here at the camp. I'm going to be waiting on God to see how it plays out. Joshua said, tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things for you. And that sort of person, a person who's standing at the edge of the river, I mean, you'll never accept, we won't accept the ordinary in light of the fact that the extraordinary is available to us with God's help and with God's leadership. I, I want to not just do ordinary, I want to do extraordinary things for the sake of God. And I'm quite convinced, friends, if you can take on that attitude, if you could take on that approach, the coming opportunities will surprise you. When you promote God's leadership in your life, then, the, then there's a disruption coming. A disruption in the water's flow is not your responsibility, it's God's responsibility. And who knows how that might happen? Who knows what might come your way even this week in form of opportunities? Like, like for example, let me tell you about a fellow named Tom. Tom was born in 1906, Tom Carvel. 
1929, he decided he wanted to go out and be, a, be in business for himself. He went around talking to his friends and found a, a young lady who had $15 that he could borrow. So he borrowed $15 from Agnes. And he said, I'm gonna start, um, I'm gonna start serving ice cream. So he got some tubs of ice cream, got himself a truck with a, with a freezer in it, and in, New, in the New York boroughs of New York City, he went around ringing a bell and hoping and praying that little kids would come running with mom and dad's money. And he would take, and he developed these forearm muscle, muscles from scooping that really hard ice cream out and putting it in a cone or a cup. And all was well for the first five years. I mean, he was making a fairly decent living, but it was, he, was, he was getting there, it was, the business was growing. But disaster struck on Memorial Day, 1934. So, you know, here we are almost, um, uh, you know, a, a, um, an anniversary of when the disaster struck. 1934 Memorial Day, he was driving along in his truck, and you know what happened? The truck broke down. Now, if you've got ice cream in a freezer in the back of the truck, and the truck has stopped working, what do you have? Have a gooey, gooey mess. He managed to limp into a parking lot, and somehow or other, people heard that he was in desperate trouble, and that his ice cream was getting soft. And so they started coming in droves. And he made more money that weekend of Memorial Day 1934 than he'd ever made in his life. Why? People were commenting and passing the word. They really liked this softer, creamier ice cream. And with that, the soft ice cream industry was born. True. Tom Carvel gave up driving around. Why spend all that money on gas, trying to keep it hard when people like it to be just softer and easier to eat? So right there in the parking lot, he never, never did pay back Agnes. He sold the truck, didn't pay her back, married her. <laughs> and he built an ice cream store, Carvel Ice Cream. And he began franchising that throughout, uh, throughout the World War II to the end of war all the way to the 1990s when he decided to sell his business and retire and he walked away with 80 million dollars. Now, on Memorial Day, 1934, the river in front of him looked impassable, right? But somebody like a man or a woman who would say, God, I'm gonna be wise, are gonna see that as an opportunity. There are moments coming to you this week where you can say, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. That's probably good news. It's probably good news that you don't know what to do. Because then we can earnestly pray, God, you shine your light on this. We unblock the windows so that the light of God will be here and I'm going to live as a person of wisdom, making the most of this opportunity. So, like, for example, okay, the windows in, in Great Britain in the 1690s, when, when Edward III says you can you pay a tax and they began blocking them all up, well, it costs a lot of money. Like, for example, here's a, a photo of a tax receipt from those days. What's interesting, though, is that for some, they chose to accept the tax cost for the sake of light in their homes. Like, for example, although the window tax wasn't in question or in operation in 1590 when Bess Hardwick, the richest woman in England apart from Queen Elizabeth I, she started to build Hardwick Hall, she um, decided she was gonna put a lot of windows in. What do you think of that? The house was known as um, more glass than wall. 
When the tax came along, her family said, what are we going to do with all these windows? You know what they decided to do? They said, we're not going to pay attention to the tax. The light is more important than what it costs us. Sound familiar? When Paul says, make certain that you pay attention to the light. Make certain you accept the light of God because it forces out the darkness. You were once darkness, it says in Ephesians, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Be very careful then how you live, as un, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Hmm. Living in the light might cost you something. You may have to say, okay, there's a tax on living in the light. The cost is surrender. The cost is a willingness to say, I'll make the most of every opportunity. But it's far healthier. You know what it's called? Mature Christian, mature spirituality in the name of Jesus Christ. This week, you may face moments that seem impassable. You might experience almost a, a, a nightmare where it feels like the darkness is going to overtake you. But beloved, you are in the light. Walk in the light. Seriously, there's a word from the Lord to you, for you today. You are in the light. Walk in the light. Make the most of each opportunity that comes, in, comes your way. Just choose that. Because here's what, here's what I'm choosing this week. I'm starting with surrender. That's what I'm doing. God, you're in control. I'm not. And each event that comes my way is an opportunity for me to say, I'm consecrated to you. How can I serve you in the midst of this? That's what I'm doing. I'm surrendering. All of me. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, this day, Lord, we pray that you would um, speak to our lives. There are people here today, uh, Lord, um, people online who are trying to figure out how does, how does this play out with my family or how does this play out with what I have to do at work? And uh, we're, we're so tempted, Lord, to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some extra laps around the, around the field to be ready for what's coming and fair enough, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sharpen my toolkit and I get that all, Lord, but beyond all of that, Lord, Help us to surrender our lives to you in a way that says you're in charge and we're going to learn how to make the most of every opportunity that comes our way. Lord God in heaven, I thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's people here today who've listened to this, who would say that, and I don't know Jesus yet, call them to you, Lord. Call them to a place of surrender that simply says, Jesus Christ, be in charge of my life. God, forgive me of my sins. Lord, I pray that you would do a really cool work in all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.